0: I would love a quick rundown of what Revere is. And I know I mentioned a little bit at the top, but I'm gonna push you a little on this, right? Revere is a ratings platform. You've also explained that Revere is the morning star for VC funds, and that's really cool. I mean, you get it, I get it, the plurality of our audience gets it, but I wanna go back to our dinner table this weekend. Like I have an extended family gathering this weekend. And when they ask what's new this week, I wanna brag about Revere, right? I wanna brag about the chance that I had to interview the Eric Wu. Um, and I want to warn that no one in my extended family even knows they don't even work in financial services, right? They don't know what the Morningstar is. They don't know what all these ratings platform is. They don't know who Sequoia, Benchmark, and and all that are. And I don't want to like—I don't want to be explaining that you're the ratings platform for VC funds to fall in deaf ears. And so I want you to help me get psyched about what you're building and what you were building. And I'm, we're both excited about it and bring it to my family when I talk about Revere and I talk about the Eric Wu. So what is Revere in the most lay people's terms as possible?
1: All right, very good question. Um, I, and, and trust me, I, I get this all the time with friends who are not in the industry, right? And, and even the concept of Morningstar might be foreign because um, people might not exactly know what Morningstar does. Well, let's, let's frame it this way. Superclusters is the podcast
0: to demystify the secrets, stories, and tactics behind the money that moves the venture capital. The fine gentleman sitting in front of me today is Eric Wu, co-founder and CEO of Revere, a platform for venture capital data, as well as portfolio management for asset allocators. Prior to Revere, Eric was a head of institutional capital at AngelList, as well as on the investment team at both top tier capital partners and Northgate. And that is a mouthful. But outside of Revere, Eric is a proud cat parent and has a fine palate for whiskey. And as of yesterday, I figured out you also are a connoisseur of tequila, something I'm hoping to absorb by osmosis one day. Eric, welcome
1: to the show. Well, David, great to be here and look forward to the conversation. Uh, A lot of exciting things to talk about, especially in this environment where a lot of us are feeling and experiencing different things uh, in Venture Capital.
0: This is totally, the this is how I'm imagining it playing out is, do you remember the movie um, Inside Out, where, you know, you had Riley and those five emotions and all that? Yes. Um, yeah. And then you see like what, what the emotions out in her dad and her mom and all that. And I think in very similar wavelengths, we have some permutation of those five emotions that we're all feeling, but we're feeling it with different, like being really nerdy here, but with different weighted averages. So in some, you know, minds, some people might like, you know, be filled with envy. Some people might be filled with anger. Some people want to be filled with sadness or joy. And um, I'm really excited. As you mentioned, there's a lot of different directions we can take this. And we're likely to cover a diaspora of com- uh, topics over here. But there are two things I really want us to focus on, right? Um, one, the insider perspective of how you pitched Angelist to institutional capital. And then, two, some hot takes that definitely fall in the territory of non consensus, including your infinity to strategy drift. Uh, We're going to cover that later in this podcast episode. But Eric, you and I swore before we clicked record that we'd go deep, so freaking deep, deeper than the Mariana trenches. So, Eric, hopefully you'll keep me honest here. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Amazing. So, I want to start somewhere in the beginning. And, um, And I was looking at your LinkedIn and looking at your back and I was like, okay, well, this is I always look for inflection points. And there was a particular inflection point very early on in your journey. So you went to school, you went to Berkeley Go Bears for mechanical engineering, but then pivoted into the world of research and mortgage-backed securities and marketing and then finally arriving at Northgate, which was your first foray into the world of the LP landscape. But I may be in the minority here. Um, but I imagine I'm not the only one thinking this, because I believe that when you go to the career center and the folks there see that you're an engineer, you tell them you're an engineer, being an LP isn't in the first 10, 20, maybe even 50, like recommended careers. So can you walk us through the behind the scenes on the inflection point from going to being an engineer to the world of asset management?
1: Yeah, it's a, uh well, Well, well thanks for, for dating me, number one, and, and, and digging up some <laughs> some 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 bad nightmares of being stuck in, in engineering labs um in college. But it it's a fascinating um question because I think every everyone who is entrepreneurial in their DNA in some shape or form uh go through a journey of of self-discovery. Um and for me, being an engineer or at least Entering Berkeley as an engineer was an artifact of just you know both my parents were, were were technical and my dad was an engineer my mom was a computer scientist and so I grew up in in a family of very technical people and I thought well you're either an engineer or a doctor or you know some something of that of that ilk and so engineering for me at Berkeley was a default but then during my four years there I quickly figured out. That I, you know, I honestly didn't have the disposition to, you know, sit in front of a computer and code, or in the case of mechanical engineering, you know, you're 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 dealing with materials and and physics and all this great stuff. So I actually ended up trying to find my way out of engineering, right? So was thinking about applying to the Haas Business School. Um, had done some interesting clubs. I even here's an interesting fact. I even took an upper class comparative literature class. Um, I think sophomore year, and that was like one of the best classes I've ever had at Berkeley, as an elective, right. So it just goes to show you that sometimes you need to go through this journey process of knowing what you don't want to be, to figure out what you or at least directionally point yourself to what you want to be. Um, So engineering for me was that first step of the journey um, after school. Uh, Went into publishing. It allowed me actually to have some time and attention to transition to finance because I did the CFA program. But let me pause there because I kind of gave you, you know, almost good seven, eight years worth of information in a short spurt there.
0: This might be a dumb question, um, but I'm going to use this podcast as a platform for me to ask dumb questions.
1: What is comparative literature? It's it's rapid pace reading and a lot of discussion around like the subtones behind the words. So so and again if you think about and this upper class you know upper class classes are generally you know 10 to 12 people um you're writing papers but these are like brilliant articulate you know generally liberal arts backgrounds and then so they have all this this um kind of nuanced way of interpretation right and then someone like me coming from a technical background also brought an interesting view the table because it was very technical. It was, um, you know, with the word structure and, you know, if they say it this way versus that way um, in the words they use, that was, that was kind of my like impute, you know, knowledge around some of this stuff, but it's a lot of discussion. And if you think about our industry to kind of bring it back to this conversation, um, it's storytelling, right? If you think about fundraising, um, if you're a startup founder or you're a new venture fund, You've got to put the words in a way to evoke these emotions that get people excited about what you're doing. Um, And in a fascinating way, compared to literature is someone on the outside looking at that author and saying, well, gosh, how do I interpret that? And sometimes you can interpret it in multiple ways.
0: What I'm recalling, the two things I'm recalling on this um, is one, um, I, I imagine you would have made an incredible contracts lawyer. Um, because you're, you're parsing through the words there and seeing what the, the undertones of that are. And the second thing is, um, what I'm, uh, really reminded, I think this was, um, and the audience can, you know, keep me honest here as well, but. I believe it was a Howard Marks investment memo from from a while back. Or maybe it wasn't an investment, but maybe he was on a podcast. Maybe he was on the Acquired podcast or something. And he says, as an investor, there's 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 a couple ways to make money, and there are three ways in particular. Which I'm forgetting the first two, but the way that stuck out to me, and which is very close to um, what you're saying right here, is one way to make money is to be really good at
1: parsing through data,
0: really good parsing through words, because if you can parse through words at a better ability or with a different perspective, then um, than others can, comparable, then um, you can make you can make some differential there, um, some delta there. Um, so that's what I'm reminded of, but obviously probably wasn't the best way of explaining it just because I'm forgetting the first two things that he mentioned on that podcast. But I believe it was the Acquired podcast with um, him and his
1: son. I call it everyone should have their own style and their flavor, right? That's what makes uh, especially investing in venture so unique, because unlike public markets where you have you know, nearly perfect information. It's about speed to information. In venture, it's about hunches and instinct. And of course you've got to have a system of taking those inputs and turning it into um, an informed view.
0: That that makes a lot of sense. Um but speaking of startup things, and I know we can go on and on between you and I we can go on and on about like Berkeley culture and how things have changed. And I'm also a couple of years removed from from Berkeley campus. Um but speaking of starting things, um and touching more into the LP world you've marinated your elbows in, in just elbow grease building emerging manager programs at both top tier as well as Northgate so speaking like going back to starting year one things um can we peel back the curtain here and have you walk us through what the process for creating such a program to back fund ones and fund twos are like because I imagine at the time in which you were building it at Northgate at top tier this was a rather transcendent way of thinking of backing not just venture capital but emerging managers
1: yeah i mean to that point i mean a lot of a lot of credit goes to you know the founding gps right at both organizations to have um trust and faith that this was a, a, a there's permanence to this part of the ecosystem right so uh, full credit due there um, when it comes to, as you mentioned, rolling up your sleeves, getting, you know, getting dirty with the elbow grease and really making and creating a program, it's so, so much more difficult than the other way of investing in funds, which is you have data, you have track record, you probably have you know years of relationship history of watching them kind of grow up because you've been an LP in the previous three funds. That model doesn't apply when you're looking at a first time fund by definition and you don't have years of track record you have bright young ambitious people who are hustling with kind of some specialization generally and you're asked they're asking you to take a bet right so how do you at the end of the day convey that to an investment committee who's used to um a 50 page investment memo with all this data supporting the investment recommendation so that's the framing of kind of what makes it hard, what makes it difficult. But the good news is a lot of this really depends on how you sell the case, how do you make the case? And this is something that I've learned and this is something that I think is so core to the fabric of fundraising, right? Whether you're fundraising as a startup founder to a VC or a VC to an LP, this personality, this this storytelling element, the framing of the opportunity the convincing, the building consensus. This is like an amazing, amazing skill that everyone has to have. So to answer your question, you know, the hard part was not the ideas. The hard part was not like, Hey, I've got a pipeline of 20 amazing people that I think would be great. The hard part is working within the decision-making process, the people, the personalities, and how do you get people excited about this category of, of venture funds?
0: I'm curious, how did you get the partnership excited for, I'm sure this is like a narrative. This is the underdog story. Obviously, this is like the Disney Pixar-esque story where like we're betting on someone before they're obvious. And I know we use that like terminology quite a bit, right? Like betting on the non-obvious, but I think it's very much true in the fun ones and fun twos. Was it hard to convince them of the narrative or was it more so how do you massage the data for people to build conviction around?
1: Yeah, the operative word there is conviction. To, to give you a little bit of a footnote in terms of that career trajectory. So after I had left Northgate, I actually went off and tried to start my own fund of funds focused on, on C to Micro VC. Um, and it was about six or eight months. And you know, I very quickly figured out it's hard to raise money. And it's definitely hard to raise money with a new idea. You know, At that time, this was out of circa you know, 2014, 2015, right? This was a, still a very, very novel concept. But going out and trying to start my own firm around this idea was how I built Conviction. I found a great landing spot with, with Top Tier as they were kind of getting their program up and running, and they needed somebody to really kind of lead the charge around um, interfacing with, with the ecosystem. So Conviction is something that you don't just you know write a blog about. You have to live it. You have to ex- experience it and i I, ha- I had to live through that for for eight months of trying to raise my own fund to really ask myself if, if am i going to really bet my career on that on this category so when i did end up in top tier i had brought all that conviction with me and through that convict conviction you have natural tools of your at your disposal around how you convince other people and sometimes it's just the Um, It's just the weight and the gravity of saying, I believe so strongly in this, that um, I'm going to make it work. And I'm going to find ways to convince you to make it work. So it's a little bit of a a loose answer. But I think it's one of those things that you, you know, the effect when you have it. And I think that's what for me when i look at my track record and some of the funds that i've invested in it was that high conviction when there were a lot of you know signals that said hey maybe this is not the right investment but it was that kind of gnawing conviction because i had spent time with that manager because i foresaw the space that they're investing in as being like kind of the next big thing
0: so i actually want to touch on the fund of funds you just mentioned um you were raising that fund to funds for eight months and you can use that period of time as a reference point or you can use a period of time when you were just like investing into fund managers what does conviction mean to you like if the, i don't i don't know if, like it's probably more of a spectrum than a like a checklist of like binary zeros and ones of like do you have conviction do you, or maybe it is binary to be fair but like what does conviction how do you define if you were if it, this was like Eric Wu's Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of Conviction. Like, How would you define and how did you personally get there into the fund managers you did invest in? Yeah, my
1: definition of conviction is first and foremost, you have to have a strongly informed view or opinion, right? And this applies to all investing, right? Not just venture, um, but specifically so in emerging managers. So number one, you have to have an informed view or an opinion. And then when you find managers or you find strategies that align exactly to that, that's where you find like kind of optimal conviction, right? And not all the time, it's not all going to hit, you know, perfectly all the time, but the closest to the merging of those two points where you, you have the opportunity that fund manager and they align directly to that informed view or opinion, that's my definition of conviction where i feel a lot of people struggle with conviction is they 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 have either too broad of a view right in terms of you know where they they see the market landscape or they have too many right so then you have kind of false positives because you're kind of hitting across three or four things and are all three or four things really at the end of the day what is going to drive returns i don't think so i think the best investors are so maniacal about saying, this is the singular view of where I think the future is going to be. And I'm going to invest 100% behind that view.
0: To flip that question on you, what was your worldview? This is give or take a decade back, 2014 circa, as you mentioned, what was your worldview of like, why you should be investing, uh, why you should be raising a fund to funds?
1: The category of emerging managers, number one, you had more and more emerging managers appearing. Right, so you had kind of breadth in the market. You can invest in all of them, right? So if you think about historical models of of how fund of funds got started, gosh, you know, over twenty years ago, it was the idea that you know there's a handful of sandhill road names, great franchises that was really hard for some people to get access to, and fund of funds provided an access layer. But it literally was a handful of like, if you can get me access to these names, that would be a great way to justify why I would. Give you money as a fund of funds manager um, to get into those names. So that's not all of it. Um, and I'm generalizing here, but for a conversational perspective, that was kind of the model of what made fund of funds so successful. When you look at this category of newer seed stage, smaller funds, emerging, where there's a lot of track record, you're going to need the shots on goal. Because you're never going to have perfect information. Where if you say, you know what, if I just pick these five, I'm going to be okay, right? That that doesn't work, right? You're you're going to need fifteen, twenty, maybe even fifty for you to really figure out. Like as long as I hit on a certain percentage of them, I'm going to be okay at the overall fund of funds level. But you need the diversification. You need the shots on goal. So so that's my comment on on fund of funds, and I think. When I had started to, or tried to raise my fund of funds, I think the other element that was really, really important as a kind of trend was a lot of the fund managers who were starting new funds were were becoming more specialized. By nature of specialization, you had to have a portfolio because you wouldn't want to put all your eggs into you know a specialist that was, let's say, at the time, maybe they were just only investing in like mobile apps, right? You can be wildly wrong or you can be wildly right. The convergence between specialization of the fund managers and the fact that you needed from portfolio construction perspective, shots on goal, that's what made it all really work and conducive to the idea that you needed a, a fund to funds approach.
0: Was that the same model in which Top Tier was going on? And how did you or the team figure out how much allocation should go into emerging managers versus just existing managers?
1: Yeah, we were fortunate we had a separate bucket. So there was there was no trade-off of saying, well, if we invest in this emerging manager, that means we can't invest in this other fund that might be, let's just say, you know, a more established fund. So we had the benefit of not of compromising the intentionality of, of the strategy right so we had capital we had it's a separate vehicle and myself and um you know one other you know senior partner we were tasked with deploying the capital so there's clear boundaries of in terms of workflows and how we would execute on on this program at top tier so so that was where we were fortunate i think there's a, a large majority of people who are investing or trying to invest in funds that don't have the benefit of that, they kind of think of everything as one pie and there are sacrifices to be made. And um, when there are sacrifices to be made, the bar becomes so much higher um, because you're investing in something that's a lesser known quantity at the moment. If
0: you were just to put like a, a, a number to it and kind of how I'm thinking about this is, and let me know if this is the right framework to be thinking about it, is really what Reed Hoffman, I, I want to say had when he was at LinkedIn, where he goes like, If you're building a business, 70% of your time has to be spent on the core business, 20% on business expansion, and then 10% on venture bets. I imagine an emerging manager program would be like that 10% of time, 10% possibly of capital, of overall capital to be spent on on fund ones and fund twos. Am I directionally right or or am I being misled or am I thinking something different?
1: Yeah, I think that's, you know, if you think about the AUM pie, you know, 10 to 15% is pretty, I would say, acceptable right when you think about a a large institutional allocator that has um, a diversified venture portfolio Um, and again it could be kind of more established funds Um, at top tier we had you know direct co-investments we had um, secondaries right both direct and also fund secondaries right so you had other strategies that were larger check sizes right so one argument or kind of one thing that you know we may probe is to say those other opportunities may not have been more or less important but because their check sizes were larger they just kind of overweight the portfolio right Um, and i think that's true because if you remember or if you we all know newer funds are all smaller funds by definition right so if you're writing a 10 million dollar check that 10 million dollar check into a 25 million dollar fund would be very difficult versus a 10 million dollar check in a 250 million dollar fund so you generally as a, a as a knee-jerk reaction i would say well our average check for the emerging manager portfolio should be one million right so you already have kind of by definition have a smaller portion of your aum in smaller funds because those funds are smaller but to kind of you know answer the question in a different way if i were doing my asset allocation in a venture book it should be inverted right i think you should be having most of your capital in the highest upside right with some downside, you know, some protection to that, and then, you know, a smaller portion to the safety net, if you will.
0: That makes a lot of sense. We're going to touch a lot on like just portfolio construction, diligencing emerging managers in just a when We touch on to uh, like, you know, on Revere and all, but I want to fulfill a promise to our audience first. I did mention AngelList at the very beginning. And so I want to touch on that for a bit. And I know you're no longer AngelList anymore. And so some of this may be more speculation, but I just want to ask about your chapter at AngelList. Um And I'm lucky because part of this podcast's like whole thing is like, I get to scratch my own itch, right? Um, and so let me preface by saying that I'm a huge fan of AngelList, especially everything like Naval, Avlock, and the team has built. Um, the company has like magnitudinally changed, like how we access groundbreaking companies and funds. And personally, I'm like, a part of a number of syndicates, uh, friends and all that on, on the AngelList platform. But with all that said, I really have one burning question. And I couldn't think of a better person to ask other than you, who managed kind of like institutional capital and relationships at AngelList. And so I've heard from a number of institutional investors like LPs, um, as well as GPs during their fundraise, that a plurality of LPs, especially the larger LPs, are averse to investing in funds hosted on the platform. And I imagine it's still a, like a question today for a lot of folks, right? And I'll, I'll preface by also by saying that, you know, there are a couple of reasons. One, um, but I know this was like probably post your time there, but rolling funds only gives you an access to certain vintages by quarter, not every fund. So if you're investing to a fund, if you weren't an LP during that quarter where GP invests in like in a winning company, you totally missed out. And the flip side is what I've heard as an excuse. And let me know if you've heard differently is that. Once you're on the platform, a larger LPs would rather not be bombarded with marketing asks and pitches all the time to join other syndicates and to invest in other funds, because deal flow to them is not a problem, unlike newer angels on the platform. So one, uh, first of all, does this corroborate with your conversations while you were at AngelList?
1: Well, I think when you think about just the concept of product market fit, you know, I think there were real issues about product market fit as it relates to. Um, the access points to venture that Angelus was trying to provide to larger institutional LPs, right? So, and we can talk about some of those factors. So, I think that that's just an easy way to frame it that it wasn't it wasn't a disconnect of Angelus doing something right or wrong. It was just is Angelus even a fit for larger LPs, right? And that's something that you know I was tasked to figure out, right? When I was when I was brought in. And when we say larger LPs, I think let's, let's, let's step back and also kind of define what that means. You know, AngelList, they have thousands of accredited investors as part of their pool of LPs, and most of these are going to be individuals. You probably have a few kind of wealthy families, but stepping beyond that, you're talking about large single family offices, multifamily offices, private, private wealth advisors. Smaller foundations and endowments, right? You're now floating into this, what I call the, the larger, more institutional P, right? And that was when I got brought in was to figure out how do we service them? What's the experience they wanted? Um, was there a product, right? And again, this, you know, I asked these questions because these were open questions. We were almost kind of given some leisure to, to have a sandbox to figure this out, to figure out if there was a market to kind of move into that, right? So I'll pause there because I wanted to at least level set in terms of um, how we define um, the problem statement and then number two, kind of what were the things that I was trying to do when I was there at AngelList.
0: I would love to kind of like, you mentioned there are some like product market fit factors that may have been like, is AngelList fit for these larger LPs? Um, And this is more exploratory in terms of early days when you were there, right? How did you explore that? How did you figure out if there was a problem that was useful to solve for larger institutional
1: LPs? People, first and foremost, we needed to create a brand around Angelus for these type of investors, right? So, Angelus had amazing, you know, look, has amazing brand and traction with founders, with angel investors, with syndicate leads, right? But it was an unknown quantity other than what you might read on TechCrunch in the eyes of of these larger LPs because they're used to seeing, you know, a five hundred million dollar fund or a top tier fund of funds as a mechanism to invest in. So to say, well I'm from Angelist and we have this like investment platform, but we're also trying to do something new to service you as a larger LP. Like it's I don't, you know, where's the track record? Like who are your other, you know, big LPs, right? So you you, you had a lot of um, similar cold start type of issues that um, I would have had if I were kind of a brand new fund or brand new fund of funds, right? So that was part of the issue. And so you can't engineer your way out of that. You can't build software. And this is where, like, you would all agree Angelus is, like, probably the best shop, if you will, of kind of creating products around, you know, workflows and, and software for this this asset class, you 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 can't engineer your way out of that, right? It's a fundamental sort of um, trust relationship brand, right? And what what we did at Angelus when I was there was just to focus on building connectivity and relationships. We we hosted a series of events where we brought these larger LPs, um, you know, it was kind of a monthly. We went to a different city, brought some GPs or syndicate leads, um, intimate dinners. Panel with some education and really focusing on the relationship because when these larger LPs got a chance to meet these, you know, let's say uh, an angel operator who was starting a first time fund, they really started to gain an appreciation for what was a unique special sauce. And that you, you didn't need, you know, five years of track record to say like, look, if when that clicks between those two people, then the check, you know, comes the, you know, the next week, whatever it might be. So we we found a great playbook around that, right? Now, I would, you know, as as a startup founder, you you have to find scale to that, and it's hard to scale, you know, this concept of relationship building, and even harder to do that through software, right? So, anyway, that was a fascinating chapter, and I think there was amazing things learned both for myself and also for Angelus in terms of how they think about that type of market, um, and even if that's the market for for where they want to go to.
0: By the time you left Angelist, have you did you come to any resolution to this is what institutional capital is looking for? And at the end of the day, is what they're looking for just so divorced from what Angelist can offer? And is that why you started revere and all that? Or what what was the what was the resolution that you came because you spent a couple of years at Angelist. I'm sure you did tons of these events, tons of conversations. Like what did you learn?
1: Yeah, I think Angelist is so amazing about sort of the iterative process of of building product and finding audiences and one of the things that was a natural uh, a natural break is i i said look there there is a real business to be built around how do we service um larger sophisticated institutional lps um, with the intention of like kind of matching them to to emerging fund managers right that business model as i had proven through some of the results was still kind of hand-to-hand combat, a little bit more service. And again, you can't kind of build software. So there was a clear kind of departure of like, if this is if I felt that there's a real business here, it had to be kind of built off platform, right? Because what Angelus does amazingly well is kind of take little modules and kind of put it on the platform. And that collective platform becomes an amazing way for you to, you know, have all these access points. And You know, for this area where it's heavy relationship building, it's longer sales cycles, that was hard to kind of modularize and put on the platform, right? So that was the reason for the separation, but Angelus was amazingly supportive. I mean, they are to this day still a small equity holder um, in Revere. Um, as you know, it's not just faith. It's like they believe there's a real business here. I think it's it's all it's all worked out right now. I think there's some point like with how we think about tech stacks and all of this amazing thing that's happening in the ecosystem. This all comes full circle because at the end of the day, it's about how do you activate capital.
0: There's another thing you mentioned earlier where you would have these conversations. There's long sales cycles. What I'm really curious about is what that pipeline effectively looked like which, and this is what I'm imagining, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna imagine a, like a, a hypothetical kind of like pipeline and you let me know how accurate I am, right? Which is one, you would have this conversation with LPs, right? You'd ask, what are you guys looking for? You know, here's what our platform is. I imagine the call to action post the call is we actually had this event in your geography coming up in the next two months. Would you be interested in showing up to it? And then they come to this event, they meet the GPs that you invite and they meet probably some other LPs as well. Like, ah, actually, this is this is a successful funnel, so to speak. Like, like this is actually pretty good. Would love to invest in the GP. They then build a relationship with that GP. Where does that leave AngelList? Um, like, because the goal is you're you're trying to nurture these long-term relationships. Like, what is the call to action post-event after? Is it another conversation? Like, at what point does some do you start thinking about conversion?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's all at the end of the day about capital flowing through the through the platform. That that's the singular most important metric. Um, for angelus and re- really any platform, right? At the end of the day, is like how much through the collective efforts or the products, how much capital are we able to get to flow through the platform? And when you host these events and you get great connections and you get great receptivity, you know, capital flows from that, right? And you do it in a way that's not, it's not transactional. It's not, you know, forcing people. its It's not conflicted. Right. Because again, like it wasn't like I was getting paid per every dollar of capital was flowing. Right. It was my job to make sure there's genuine relationships. And then that we were building a market, building into a market where we can see some scale of that capital coming through.
0: What were leading and lagging indicators for the event? Like wh- what what did you have to do in order to like this is our success metric from the event? Um, there's 2 I'm imagining. And let me know if I'm right or wrong. Right. One is like the leading indicator would be the number of LPs and GPs we can get in this event. So the number of folks, the number of like legit institutional capital we can get in the room. The lagging indicator would probably be the amount of capital that's being flown on AngelList post a relationship or something getting built from the event. Am I right there? Or was there something else in the mix?
1: Yeah, no, that was that was the right thinking, right? And we, we, we measured all this stuff um, at AngelList because AngelList loves measuring everything. Um, and I think we... We definitely proved there was ROI to to the events, um, and we we even had some people like come to multiple events simply because they were just like that event was such a great experience, right? And I and I think we'll we'll be using this word frequently, you know, when you create the right experience, um, people come back, you get repeat buyers, right? They invest more, um, and it's a it's an underappreciated sort of element here. Right, As we talk to an audience that is kind of eager to talk about kind of fundraising tips and, you know, the art of fundraising, right? The experience is so important.
0: Let's touch on experience. Um, But specifically, I think we've hit snooze on this for long enough. Um, Would love to chat about Revere and how that eventually will bleed into experience for LPs and all that kind of stuff. But on the, I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on Revere at all in this conversation, just because it's like the elephant in the room. Um, In doing research for this conversation, it seems like, you know, Revere has gone through three pivots um, before landing on what it is today, which is a ratings platform for LPs on GPs. Uh, But before we even get into pivots, the whole reason I even preamble is to seed the question in your mind. But before I get into that, I would love a quick rundown of what Revere is. And I know I mentioned a little bit at the top, but I'm going to push you a little on this, right? Revere is a ratings platform. You've also explained that Revere is the morning star for VC funds, and that's really cool. I mean, you get it, I get it, a plurality of our audience gets it, but I wanna go back to our dinner table this weekend. Like I have an extended family gathering this weekend, and when they ask what's new this week, I wanna brag about Revere, right? I wanna brag about the chance that I had to interview the Eric Wu. Um, And I want to warn that no one in my extended family even knows, they don't even work in financial services, right? They don't know what the Morningstar is. They don't know what all these ratings platform is. They don't know who Sequoia Benchmark, entries and Dresden, all that are. And I don't want to like I don't want to be explaining that you're the ratings platform for VC funds to fall in deaf ears. And so I want you to help me get psyched about what you're building, what you're building, and I'm we're both excited about it. And bring it to my family when I talk about Revere and I talk about the Eric Wu. So what is Revere in the most laypeople's terms as possible?
1: All right, very good question. Um, And and trust me, I I get this all the time with friends who are not in the industry, right? And and even the concept of Morningstar might be foreign because um, people might not exactly know what Morningstar does. Well, let's let's frame it this way: like, if you're in the conversation um, at the dinner table, um, you can ask a simple question: like, if you're in a new city and you don't know what restaurant to go to, what app do you pull up on your phone? And what do you think most people would say?
0: four letter word starts with y ends with p
1: so there is you know that's there there's just like kind of a ubiquitous like i'm hungry i don't know where to go but i know i want to go to a, a well-rated place or where at least somebody says you know the food is good here right that's 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 yelp right and so if you put yourself in a position where it's like you know what there's all these funds out there i don't know who's good but I kind of know I want, you know, same way, like I want Chinese food. I want to I want a fintech fund. Where would I go? Where would be my first destination to go and just you know narrow the list? Right? That's that's that was that was the aha moment for Ravier's. If you boil it down in those simple, simple terms, um, you can explain it to anybody, and it was a pain point that no one was solving. There was no Yelp right? You were left to your own devices. You had to ask your friends like, Hey, tell me, you know, good fund or, you know, who's interesting to you. Um, it just, it didn't exist. Right. So that's, that was really that final pivot. You mentioned three pivots. That was the aha moment for us. That
0: makes, we're going to touch on pivots for sure.
1: I will also say that Revere is not as simple as a one to five star
0: rating. I can't just like look at a one to five star rating. And go, oh, okay. This, this is a fun that's three and a half stars, four and a half stars. You have a heat map. Um and, and like, given our lot, lot of our audience are emerging LPs, like how do they even go about reading a heat map? They don't yet have the framework
1: as, as like an institutional LP. So I think going back to that word experience, and you know let's bring it to kind of a, a, a product level, um, UI and UX is so important, right? And not just the software you use or the websites that you browse, but UI UX in front of somebody who's about to make a decision in this case, an investment decision on whether or not to spend time with this manager and potentially invest, the UI and UX is so, so important, right? So in that product mindset, you know, the heat map is to influence the reaction of the reader to not focus on the score and the number, but to focus on the red area, right? Because again, we know by definition, most of almost every emerging manager. Let's just be blunt. They're not going to be perfect scores, right? Right. And there's always going to be something that's like, oh, you know, these two categories are kind of like on watch or, you know, something there. So when you present a heat map, you're just trying to draw the attention. It's like, this is what they're really good at. This is what they do. Okay. And these are the things that you may want to check out.
0: Gotcha. And and to like build a concrete example about this, right? Let's say I see a heat map for for a fund manager and I go like, okay, well, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I see these two red areas. One red area is I'm making this up, deal flow, right? The other red area is, oh, the, the, this is a brand new partnership, right? Like this is, and I, I, if you did tell me the five things that's on the rating score. And like, I, I apologize, it's my fault for forgetting. But um, like, if you see those things, like oh, well, then you start thinking, how important is it that this is a brand new partnership? And how important is it that they may not be best in class on deal flow? Although all the other areas are green. And that's probably like, where, if you are going to take the conversation, where you're going to start the conversation.
1: It's a it's a great question, and it's a very um, nuanced but super, super important um, way of how we describe kind of how people should be utilizing our service. Um, so there's 20 categories, right? There's kind of five big buckets, right? There's like team, there's track record, there's value add, there's firm management, right, um, and sourcing. So. Within those, there's like kind of four subcategories. So, you know, total there's, there's, there's 20. Um, so the heat map actually covers all 20 things. And we made an important and deliberate decision not to apply any kind of weights. The reason for that is you might have somebody, let's say a family office that is investing in some of these funds and they're investing in the funds because they want access to deal flow and co-investment opportunities. So that particular lp might look at that kind of lp co-investment area and say you know what that being dark green uh, that's like half the battle you know i would personally put 50% of the weight on the scoring system for like lp co-investment you might have a big endowment that says you know what we don't we don't do any co-investment like we care about track record right so 80% should be on track record so as we we knew this as allocators, right? Intentionally, um, because I came from the institutional side, my, my co-founder, Chris was on the family office side. We knew like different strokes for different folks. Right. So we didn't want to go out there and take our Revere weighting and force that on other people. Now people can go and assign their own weightings and they can come up with their own composite score. Right. And, And people do do that. Right. But that's up to them. So, so that's, how I would answer kind of when we get approached that question. And that's part of the education when we're talking about our reports and we're describing, how do you actually use this report? It's first and foremost, it's not a be all end all, like use this to like invest in this fund. It's like, this is going to number one, help you screen. And number two, get you to the kind of final leg, the final mile. Like how do you actually finish the diligence, right? You still have to meet the manager. You so still have to kind of ask some of these probing questions. Um, you know, you still probably have to do like the LPA review, right? Like we don't kind of get super into the weeds uh, on that stuff. But we take you all the way up to that last mile.
0: I have, I have a question on on best practices in general. And I know Revere plays Switzerland in the world of emerging GPs and all that. You, you don't go like, this is a great one. This is a not great one. You make your own decision, right? Um, and in the world of playing Switzerland, um, one of the things... Going back to the Yelp analogy, I I like Yelp. I think my partner is a much bigger fan of Yelp. She's a Yelp elite. She writes reviews every single time, everywhere she goes. But the one thing I dislike about Yelp is that there are sponsored restaurants, like there's sponsored posts, so to speak. Right. That said, some people really like it because then it's like, oh, this, this like, I I don't know why people like it, but to be fair, I dislike it. Is there ever a version in Revere where there's the equivalent of a sponsored post? And it may not be like here's the here's a, a GP we're highlighting, but it could be. Like, here's the best practice for this one LP. Here's the best practice. Or here, here's the practice for this one LP. Is there ever gonna be like, can I learn from other people's frameworks as well? Can I like, is that top of my news feed, so to speak? Will that ever be a thing?
1: We've experimented with some of this. Okay. Uh what I will say definitively is, you know, we 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 do think of ourselves as in the service of GPs, right? So we we don't wanna charge GPs. Like, because it just creates all sorts of conflicts, right? But the idea to be able to highlight a certain GP versus somebody else, I think that's the natural progression when you have a lot of data, right? So in the beginning, we want breadth of coverage, we want all these data points, and as you get the distribution of those scores and you meet all the different fund managers, you're obviously gonna have data-driven signals that, that pop up, right, that, that are defensible, and it's not Eric Wu's opinion. That you know, I met David, and I think he's a great manager, right? So, some of the things that we have um, experimented with is in a committee setting. So, every fund before it gets kind of fully rated goes through a committee with our our team of analysts, and the people will say, you know what, I think this sounds like an amazing fund. Like, I want to nominate them to be best in class or rising star. So, we kind of have two um, kind of categories of like being able to highlight so one is rising star which is generally for those who are unproven but have a lot of really fascinating interesting ingredients and attributes that we think make them super high potential and then you have best in class where you know let's just pick a category like you know you know real estate tech where it's like we we've, we've we've rated 10 real estate tech or prop tech funds and we think this is the the top two or three and we think it's the best in class right um, so that's done in a committee setting. Um, so you do have a little bit of infusing of personal judgment, but it's in a committee setting. So you we play devil's advocate. So that's one way that we think um that we, we would like to test with the market to say, here's who you know you should pay a little bit more attention to without sacrificing the personalization that makes sense. And then the other thing is as we get more data on performance, at the end of the day. It's the performance that should be the arbiter of like, okay, they sounded great on paper, did they actually execute and generate the performance?" So in time, I can also see us, from a performance standpoint, be able to, again, in you know how we package this LPS, TBD, show where the best performing funds are and who they are.
0: I want to touch on performance because a lot of LPs, when they invest in VCs, they typically just look at TVPIDPIIRR. DPI, IRR. Those are like the three North Star metrics, so to speak. Um, and that oftentimes is what performance is. And obviously by fund close 10 years later, 15 years later, like you'll, you'll find out who the, the best ones are, right? My question is, and this is a discussion I've had recently with a couple of LP friends of mine, is um, are there telltale signs of DPI, TVPI before fund close that in your experience, and I, I'm forcing you not to be Switzerland over here, so I'm, I'm forcing you to be like taking a sign. Um, but in your experience, anecdotally, things might change right down the road um, that are nice. So I'll give an example, right? Um, one thing I've heard recently is great funds typically return 1x their distributions to paid in capital um, before year five, or like around year five to year seven. That's obviously before fund closed, but they they started returning some capital back to their investors. Are there other metrics, telltale signs that you've seen that are indicative of probably a top performing or better performing fund? Yeah, I
1: think this one, um, a little bit technical, um, but I think it's it's it to answer the question directly, I think there is a clear metric in my mind, and I think this is not anything that's like a secret, but what you're looking for in a fund is the ability for a single company or let's say two or three companies to be able to return the entire fund right? because we know that you know you're looking for outliers, especially at the early stage. So if you are able to you know in a portfolio of twenty thirty companies, have the clear makings from a valuation perspective that one or two or three of those companies could return your entire fund, then then you're, you're in a kind of a different category. And so that way you don't have to kind of confuse with like, well, what should the TVPI be? What should be the DPI by what year? At the end of the day, when you look at how a fund is investing and as their companies are growing and raising subsequent rounds, You're looking at that fair market value for those single positions, and you're trying to figure out how much of the the fund does that return for that company. And so, that simple rule of thumb, I think, will generally guide and sort of dispel a lot of the noise about like other things, like even ownership, right? Because kind of baked into ownership or baked into the concept of returning a fund, you may have really high ownership in a company that's doing okay and that can return the fund, or you can have very low ownership in like Uber and the seed round, and that would like return multiples of your fund. So this is where I think LPs get caught a little bit in the trap of kind of focusing on sometimes the wrong metrics, because that's what's kind of bandied about. But at the end of the day, cash on cash returns are driven by outlier companies in the portfolio.
0: And I also do want to caveat that sometimes it's hard to like measure, like, as I mentioned, if you look at a metric in in, in isolation, it's often hard to like evaluate a fund, which is why you have the heat map in, in the first place. Like for example, I, I mentioned like 1X DPI uh, distribution. So you're returning, it's like, as Chris Dubos would say, like and the kula, right? Like you're returning that amount of money within five to seven years. But if your total value, your paper returns, your book value is only 2X the fund, that's probably not a good time to be like distributing back your investments. You probably want it to be much higher. So no no metric in isolation, obviously. Um, there is something else. Speaking of things that you possibly measure at, um, at, at Revere, there is something you do measure at Revere, which is community. Um, and the reason I want to touch on community is it's one of those, I, I'm a big fan of it, but it's one of those amorphous concepts that are hard to measure both qualitatively and quantitatively. In fact, the word community in, in 2020 and 2021 and 2022 alone has been romanticized and lost its luster in the past few years due to overusage because everyone has a community, right? And any collection of individuals from a dinner party to a demographic to like a Slack or Discord channel to an offline book club. Like I I heard recently, like it was a 10 person book club and they're like, we're a community. Um, And so some obviously definitions stronger than others and more robust than others. Nevertheless, a strong community is undeniably very powerful, especially when it comes to deal flow, network effects, portfolio support and all that. And so I have two questions here. One, um, at Revere, how do you define community?
1: And then two, how do you measure it? The first most important thing is just being able to ask the question and be able to say that this is an important factor for uh, you know in terms of the, the attribute that has a meaningful impact on on future returns. So I think that was what we learned is like we, we just got to start to ask these questions. Right? The measurability is tricky, but. Like any other qualitative category in our rating system, the way we make it quantitative is to be able to capture and survey a wide range of answers right so if let's say we ask a question, it's like, well, describe your community and what are you doing to activate your community on behalf of your 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 founders and your portfolio right So we ask that question. And let's say we'll get a hundred answers. You clearly start to see patterns in the answer, right? Where if somebody says something very basic, I mean, there's some people that say, you know what, community is not important. Like for what we do and how we make returns, community is not important. And that's perfectly fine. Like they're not going to have a great score there, but they're going to have maybe great scores in other areas, right? Um, And that's perfectly fine. And then you also start to see, um some of the initiatives and some of the impacts of the upper end of those answers where it's like amazing right and it's either by virtue of scale because they like have this like amazing annual event that everyone shows up to and like there's deals that get done at that event right that's just kind of a loose example but you start to see the pattern of how people answer and then our job as former allocators that have to of understand the art science is to say well you know what those 10 answers out of 100 those are a five out of five right and you know the next 20 is kind of four three right like so you start to map the answers and the clustering of answers to the scores right that's that's really kind of the, the starting point for the algorithm and as you get more and more data points, you're continuously reinforc you know, it's like kind of reinforcement training, right? Or like training models, right? You are able to fine-tune that, right? Where the boundaries of like, okay, is that a that was a three and a half, maybe that's now a four or that's a three. So that's the other thing that I think is super important to speak to the audience about is the scoring system is number one, relative. And number two, it's kind of a living breathing thing. It's not meant to say that a three is always going to be a three. Um, and we make this very clear because the other half of the work beyond the scoring is there is a there's an analyst there's a real person there's no a i bots here there's a real person who's taking all those scores and they're actually writing a summary of how people should be interpreting them, that. and that's super powerful um so i am I'm curious out of let's say the hundred know
0: hype i don't know how like you probably collected hundreds of answers at this point, but um. Yeah. What has been some of the most
1: memorable answers for you when it comes to community? To me, I think some of the things that stood out was number one, just like the way that people resource around activating the community, meaning um, there's people behind the effort, dedicated people behind the effort. There's um consistency right so if it's like kind of hosting events like it's a series of events right. it's not just like ad hoc you know we get a bunch of founders together and have you know happy hour of dinner and then you had mentioned this even the mere fact that people are trying to measure impact of the community right i mean look i mean you you you, you know the programs and on deck right and it's 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 there's there's great systems and data behind that right measuring connections right so just the mere fact that there's um, a system to measure the connections and to rate the connections like that stands on that stands head and shoulders by itself. Right now, to your point, when pe- people start recognizing that everyone should be doing this, like if you think about Andreessen and their kind of corp, you know, kind of their activation of, you know, their, you know, hordes of people that can come in and like help you across all these different categories of, of growth. At some point, community—it's possible that people just say, "You know what? Standard practice to have a, a head of community and to have a software system, right?" And at that point, you know what we consider a, a best-in-class—you know, five out of five—that that that score can change, right?
0: That makes sense. And speaking of Andrews, I think they were recently, as of the recording of this podcast, a couple months back, hiring for someone for community as well. So someone, a position a, a, like a responsibility, they take very seriously as well. Also, the fact that I mean we're both based in the Bay Area. They recently hosted like San Francisco Tech Week, so that's another lever of it. Oh, absolutely it's huge. Yeah. Um. So I want to take a step back from Revere for a second. Um. And and talk about like kind of the the larger LP industry as a whole, and possibly we can glean some. Um, I wouldn't say best practices. Hopefully, best practices, but some insights from all this. Um. So a question I have here, and I'll seed the question first, um, is. What have you seen are subconscious influences that are muscle memory to an LP, in other words, fast and unconscious thinking, but should have been taken slower and more methodical because of its frequency to malfunction? And I'll buy you some time as uh, uh, to, to think of the answer. But like the the question really originates from from two people I, who I deeply respect, and I've only been able to learn from afar. One, Charlie Munger, and then two, Daniel Kahneman, particularly around like decision making. Munger has this great question, which I really like, which is you'll see a lot of inspiration here is what are the subconscious influences that uh, where the brain at a subconscious level is automatically doing these things, but by and large are useful but often malfunctions, right? Um, effectively, as human beings, we should divorce like process from outcomes, meaning we can be right for the wrong reasons and wrong for the right reasons. And the second inspiration, as I mentioned, is Kahneman, right? And Kahneman says that all humans and his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, has Like, you know, two systems of thinking, system one, fast, unconscious, associative thoughts, system two, slow, methodical, rational thinking. And to analogize this both to the world of LPs, what do many LPs by and large make decisions very quickly about, but should do a double take because of how frequent an error 404 page pops up as a result of making fast subconscious thinking decisions.
1: Yeah, this is, I, I'll give you one very, very easy, clear example is, you know, sort of the concept of, um, you know, if an LP is meeting a GP, you know, in the back of their mind, or even they're verbalizing this, they say, well, you know, who else is investing, right? right. And, and we we know this psychology for, for startups as well, right? It's like, who else is it? Who else is investing, right? Do I know this person? Do I know and respect them? Um, is there some signal behind that? Um, so that That is a fast thinking, kind of unconscious, like, oh, if that person's in, then you must be good kind of thing. So that happens everywhere, especially happens in emerging managers. And this is why I think it's so hard and so critical when emerging managers first start the fundraising, that they they have to kind of get the right early adopters, early believers in, because there is this mentality that's out there.
0: That makes sense. If we were to pull another example
1: out of the, 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 the
0: Cosmos, are there any other things that LPs typically do, um, either yourself or you've learned or you've seen colleagues or other just LPs do, where yeah. they should probably pause and think more on?
1: Well, I think it's, I mean, there's, there's things like, you know, how does the, you know, how does a pitch deck look? You know, the design, the visuals of the pitch deck. There's, you know i'll maybe pick something that is much more in the weeds like so when i would meet with an emerging manager and let's say there's um you know they have like kind of a team of two or a team of three uh if only one person is talking the whole time right and there's two or two or three people next to him or her and they aren't talking right so there's a little there's a little thing that kicks off in my mind it's like well number one why are you talking like i, I want to learn and meet and understand you know the rest of the team um and i want to hear from them um so so again there's these little kind of cues and little signals um and there's you know if you sat me down i probably could come up with 20 or 30 of these little cues but it all factors into what you what you said there's there's kind of the the quick thinking side of it and there's a rational side of it where where that Very nuanced, like I'm reading the body language of that in person meeting, like that's that's a rep, that's a very like rational, like I'm looking for those cues, right? Whereas that first example of saying, hey, just initial knee jerk reaction, I'm asking, you know, who else is in, that's like a quick, quick, fast action way of thinking.
0: Okay, so now I know we're running short on time here, but I want to get into the world of contrarian takes or takes that need some more elaboration. Um, So let's rewind to 2021 first. Um, and let me know if this still holds, because I know there are some ideas and beliefs that don't age as well as others. Um, but you wrote something quite provocative that I couldn't help but do a double take on. And even after a triple take, what you said was so orthogonal to my osmotic education of what I have learned over the past couple of years and how LPs iterate and adapt their investment model and all that. Um, so I promised myself I would ask you today. So what you wrote, and I'm going to quote here so I don't like misrepresent it, is You wrote that I actually encourage fund managers to continuously iterate and adapt their investment model over time. This is quite counter against tradition, thinking of larger fund, size bad, strategy shift bad, or strategy drift bad. Um, Change is to be embraced and tackled and not avoided. Can you elaborate
1: on that? Because most LPs, as far as I know, dislike strategy or thesis drift. Yeah, this is again. Um, it touches a little bit upon what we just talked about. That there's kind of people are always trying to find ways to say no, right? And you know, when you think about things like, well, gosh, why is your fund size doubling in in size? Or you know, this concept of strategy drift. It's it's an it's an easy way for people to just look at that surface level and say no, right? Because they're short on time. There's a lot of funds coming at them and. You know, they're just finding they just need a single reason, you know, they're looking for reasons to say no. So when I wrote that, um, that was informed partially because if you think about ten plus years of investing in funds, sometimes fund one, seeing them grow from fund two, fund three, fund four, they all as they become successful, they all violate these like, you know, they they violate these like these these things about growing in fund size and growing the team and they're going from C to series A, everyone does it, right? That's the definition of building a franchise is as you grow, your strategy grows, your team grows, you're servicing a different LP market as well. So that tweet was to really kind of dispel this notion that it's not a bad thing that if a, a fund manager is doubling size, what's important is to ask the question, why? And in that new strategy, if it's a strategy shift. Um, can they continue to be successful? Can they take the ingredients that made them successful before and apply to this, you know, this next vintage year's worth of, of you know, performance that they're going to try to It's about that slower take,
0: slower take, no knee-jerk reaction, although we are very prone to, to knee-jerk reactions as a human race as a whole. Um, okay, so I want to try something. Uh, but I want the Eric Wu play by play here, and I'm going to share four tweets, one from each vintage year over the past four years um, that deserves a little more than 140 to 280 characters and I'd love for you to shed some more color onto them. All right. So we're going to start in 2019 and we're going to make our way to 2022. So. All right. So starting first one, um, 2019, you tweeted companies need to start with identity. Which naturally becomes culture. If instead culture becomes your identity, then you've got it all wrong. So, from your unique vantage point across over a decade in the LP world, what is one example of a venture firm that started with identity that went on to become the firm's culture?
1: I remember meeting four scruffy looking dudes um, called ENIAC Ventures <laughs> um, when they were a fun one. And um, you know i'm 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 good friends with them so they 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 i'm sure they'll um they'll accept my apology for kind of calling them out but you know this idea when they first started their first fund i mean there were four successful operators who had sold companies in kind of this this kind of new idea about mobile first right um and and they had had built a you know built a initial prototype around, we think that all new startup companies should have a mobile strategy, right? And we know this because we had built companies, we had sold companies in this kind of mobile, early mobile era. And so that was something where they were early, they had in their kind of DNA embraced this concept about, you know, kind of mobile and mobile first investing. They did annual events. They obviously were in some amazing, iconic companies. They've now, I mean, I think they're at least on Fund Five, you know, very institutional, built a big franchise. And so that's an amazing example, right? Where you have this identity because of where you came from and it became bigger than ENIAC, right? It literally became bigger, right? This concept because it's ubiquitous. But I would say they, they get absolute full credit for kind of pounding the pavement early on that. I love it.
0: I love it. Um, okay we'll move on. Oh, man, there's so much I want to touch on there, but for the sake of time, we'll move on to the next year. We're in 2022. Uh, we're in 2020 now, right? Um, and you wrote in 2020 on a tweet, I do my best writing and critical thinking at night. The mind is reflective and pensive, trying to slowly digest a day's worth of data. What are the ingredients to a night well spent?
1: This is now that I'm, you know, in the, the founder CEO sh- shoes, It it's so so apt is so true right like you you just have um data overload right and time to reflect on data overload is so so important right whether you're an entrepreneur whether you're a fund manager and even i would argue as you're an lp try to like figure out how you kind of squeeze excess returns from different places in my opinion the the night well spent is um clarity of thought and the way i get clarity of thought in my own way is actually triangulating a lot of information there's some people that says you know what i need to have like zero peace and quiet for three hours and then in a zen like moment something appears um, my style is actually to take this let's just say a week's worth of information i read this article oh my gosh a new is coming online and I had these all like kind of tucked away mentally in little sticky notes. And then in that moment at night, you know, usually before I go to bed, um, I kind of pull these sticky notes out of my mind. It's like, what's the common thread here? And generally when I start to see some interesting connection, I'm like, oh my gosh, I got it. Like tomorrow I'm going to the office or, you know, sometimes I got to hold back not to, you know, spam a, a Slack message, but I go into the office or, you know, I say, hey, you know what? I've got like an amazing idea, right? Or I think these things are all connected and we should change the product roadmap in a certain way. So that's my style. Um, And again, I know everyone's a little bit different, but I think there's gotta be a method to the madness and everyone's got to have their own method. I love
0: it. I love it. I ask that selfishly because I have an evening routine and I try to like learn from others and see if I can absorb something helpful. And in this case, yeah, very helpful. I think it's a framework of thinking of how uh, nights can be well spent. All right. We're into 2021 here. Um, you wrote Ru, you you wrote that angel investing is today's version of a tip jar. So if angel investing is to tip jar, then LP investing is to emerging in emerging managers is to blank. What should be in that blank?
1: Um, this was this one is a really really interesting one. I I, um, I wrote it. So let me give you the frame of mind of of how I wrote it, and I'll give you the answer. So I wrote it from a frame of mind, you know, reflecting on my time at Angelus and seeing the the ease and the velocity of how somebody can literally click two buttons and write a $5,000 check into a startup company, right? That's essentially what what Angelus pioneered. So the tip jar concept was saying, "Oh my gosh, it's just like the accessibility to get access to deal flow." And the transactability to be able to, you know, in the tip jar, you know, throw a dollar or a few coins because of, you know, you know, good service, in this this case, a good idea, like it just felt so fast and furious, right? So that was the frame of mind around um, the tip jar comment. So when we apply this to fund managers and, and LPs investing in fund managers, I think it's something that almost feels like the way you you do kind of school donations so i i've I've got a daughter and you know i've gone through years of like donating to the pta and you know this concept of this is a worthy cause right and and it's and it's a loaded kind of word because it could mean things around um, diversity it could mean things around impact investing it could be you know sustainability or climate tech investing where it's like you know what, this is an important cause and I want to put capital behind that. Um, and it's a it's a way oversimplification, but it's emblematic of this idea that um, mission orientation of capital coming into venture capital is so much more prevalent today than it was even a few years ago. And the reason this is important is if you're a GP out there listening to this, You've got to find the mission, mission orientation of the LP that you're talking to, and if you can do that, and also do all the other things in terms of convincing them that you'll be a good investor, that's how you maximize success.
0: I love it. I like. I think the re, I, I love that last comment especially because I think so many GPs when they jump in a conversation with an LP, they immediately get into pitch mode, and this is something that founders do with VCs as well. But they don't just pause and just ask a couple of questions. And the first meeting is always so much more powerful when you ask questions like, what is your mission? Why are you investing? What is investing into you? What, you know, one of the questions I like, and, you know, I, the people can feel free to steal and whatnot is, uh, what would you like to have written in your eulogy? Like, what would they want? Like, by the end of their lives, and this might be a little bit morbid than expected, but, you know, what would you like to have done? And often that mission alignment is is, is so important for, for LPs.
1: It, it's it's huge. I think um, it's so much of, the language of speaking kind of this LP language today has dramatically shifted. Um, and if you really understand the motivations right behind, um uh, why people are investing in this asset class, it's, 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 it's going to be a remarkable way to, to be successful, right. Um, in not only fundraising, but building a brand, right? Like, and that's a whole separate episode around what does brand building mean for, a venture fund, right? Um But we'll save that for another time.
0: Save that for another time. We might need to do a, a follow-on episode. All right, last year. All right, we're in 2022 now. This is last year. Um, Eric Wu tweets that, um what's one thing you keep telling your kids to do that they never listen? I'll go first. Put away your goddamn shoes. Don't leave them right at the door. So the question to you is, what is one thing constantly recommend to GPs or to LPs to do for them to do, but they just never listen. Or conversely, you know, on the LP side as well.
1: Um everyone wants a perfect script. Right? Everyone wants uh the shortcut, what should I say, what shouldn't I say, um that gets me in trouble. Um so so my advice is you know make approach everything as a conversation, right? And there's a, there's a human behind that conversation. So if you if you take that as um, the singular most important thing is you've got to make a connection with this individual, right, and to make a connection, you obviously have to tell a great story, they have to find you know trust and credibility capability in terms of what you do because they're you know ultimately going to be giving you money and trusting you with money. but none of that is possible without kind of the the human part of it, the personality part of it, and the resonance of that. So the tip is treat every conversation as a conversation, not as a pitch. I love it.
0: I love it. Okay. One last
1: question to you before we jump over here, and I want
0: to come full circle. Um, we started with investing topics. We're going to end on investing topics, but it will keep it fairly lighthearted nature. And I want to touch on the last thing of humanness that you mentioned earlier. What is an investment opportunity you missed out on not because
1: of what you did, but because of what you didn't do. This is a hard one because it part of it is there's there's a lot of investments that I didn't do and and I and I can't necessarily pinpoint one in ex, an exact moment, but especially in an organization like a uh, a top tier or a Northgate where I'm presenting to investment committee. I think you can get into a trained mindset where oh my gosh i know like they don't like first-time funds or they don't like solo gps and again i'm kind of you know using this as an example so sometimes you start to change your pattern recognition or your kind of level or sort of metrics for conviction according to those that are around you and i think there's there's multiple occasions where i had personal conviction where i was just like you know what it's gonna be too much work it's gonna be too much work to convince um and those ended up being great investments but we all have that we all have that so so that's what i would say would be um kind of the, the the thought pattern around not letting kind of others unduly influence you know kind of how you think about the world
0: Amazing. Well, Eric, there's a list of more topics. I said I had five pages worth of questions to ask you. We got through probably like a third at best of them and not even like the the other follow-on questions. This deserves an episode too, but I want to be cognizant of everyone's time here. And thank you so much for for coming to the show, sharing all your insights, sharing your path into uh, the world of venture LPs, as well as about Revere. I pushed some buttons here. Hopefully I didn't go too far, but nevertheless, I wanted some, some hot takes. Um, but regardless, thank you so much. And, um, as, if anyone wants to find you, obviously you're on socials, but like, where's the best place for people to find you?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Eric J. Woo, E R I I C J W O we're on LinkedIn. Um, just look up Revere, um, and stay tuned. We, we are going to be rolling out a lot of events and community and content. Um, and as I mentioned, kind of throughout, you know, we're not only building products and solutions for the LPs and allocators, but we at the end of the day are in the service of the industry and the GPs, um, who are fighting the good fight.
0: Amazing. All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much. Everyone can find you on Twitter, on LinkedIn. They'll stay tuned for events. Hopefully you'll do it in different geographies. Um, but I want to thank everyone. I want to thank you. And until next time.
1: Love it. Appreciate being here. Thank you again.
0: Hello, Superclusters fans. You've seen the logo at the beginning, and now we're here to address the elephant in the room. And the big question is how intertwined is Superclusters and Alchemist Accelerator? And the truth is Superclusters and Alchemist Accelerator are two completely separate entities, other than the fact that it is only I, David, your host, who is able to traverse between the multiverses. And so the reason Alchemist is a sponsor for Superclusters is the same reason why I ended up joining Alchemist. Um, and it's for two reasons, the team and the product. So let me elaborate a little bit. For the team side, I was doing a bunch of diligence, homework, reference checks before I joined Alchemist. And I stumbled across a story with, which was between Ravi and an early team member of Alchemist. Um, and for the sake of this story, I'm gonna call that person John. So Ravi and John were working late at night because they had a deadline coming up. And as they were about to leave, Ravi found out that John didn't have a place to stay and had been sleeping out of his car the entire time. And the next thing Ravi did literally blew my mind, which was Ravi gave the keys to his place to John and said, John, you're free to stay here for as long as you want. And I knew instantly that this is the team I wanted to join. This is the, the, the culture I wanted to be a part of. Um, the second thing is the product itself. Uh, Alchemist has built this really robust product called The Vault, and it is the epitome of Peter Drucker's infamous line, which is you cannot manage what you don't measure. And so for the uninitiated, what is Alchemist Accelerator? Alchemist Accelerator is your startup accelerator for companies that monetize from enterprises. And so don't take it just from me. Uh, we've backed incredible companies, including names you've heard of, LaunchDarkly, Mo Engage. And we're also backed by some incredible LPs and investors, including Coastal Ventures, Mayfield, Salesforce. And now between you and I, I can't share any of the numbers. And if I do, my compliance officer, our compliance officer, will literally gobble me up for breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea, and dinner. And personally, I'm too young to die. And, but I will say the numbers, they're great. Like they're really great. And so if you're curious and want to get involved in Alchemist um, and the ecosystem, check out alchemistaccelerator.com backslash superclusters. And that's superclusters with an S at the beginning and at the S at the end. And we'll also include these links in the notes. Hey, Superclusters fans, this is David from Post and want to share a few things before you go. If you're tuning in from the YouTube universe and if you like this episode and you wanna see more of it, consider subscribing, it's free. Let us know down in the comments which LPs you'd want to see next, or topics you liked and want to hear more of. If you're tuning in from the audio universe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever content finds your ear, and you liked what you heard, give us a follow. And lastly, I want to share a quick disclaimer from our legal friends. While I am the Head of Investor Relations at Alchemist Accelerator, and that Alchemist Accelerator is one of our proud sponsors, The views expressed in this episode are for informational purposes only and are solely the views of myself and the guest alone. They are not representative of Alchemist Accelerator. None of the views expressed herein constitute legal, investment, business, or tax advice, and any allusions or references to funds or companies are purely for illustrative purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment recommendations. Consult a professional investment advisor near you prior to making any investment decisions. And that's all from me. See you on the next.